Take a network break. Provision yourself with some virtual donuts. We've got a full show today. We're sponsored in part by Dell Technologies. You can learn about how open source Sonic can play multiple roles in your enterprise network infrastructure with Dell Technologies and its commercial versions of the open source Sonic, both within the data center and further. Get more details at dellTechnologies.com slash networking. And stay tuned after the news. We have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Nokia. We'll be talking about the Nokia Fabric Services, delivers fabric management of your data center, embraces the functionality of the service router Linux, SR Linux for short, and brings intent-based automation to your data center fabric. All right, uh, before we get to the news, Greg, we've got some FU. Uh, yeah, I love it when people send us FU, the follow-up, tell us, give us some feedback where we got wrong which is mostly what we did this time around. People have been uh, sending us their follow-ups via our website, packetpushes.net slash FU, or you can just email us, packetpushes at gmail.com. Love to hear about you. If you want to be anonymous, just say it's anonymous. Um, anonymous just means sometimes we can't get back to you. We don't generally put people's names out there unless there's a specific or thing. Uh, we got a message in, uh, we talked last week a lot about DPUs, Docker, and open source. So this is the idea of SmartNICs uh, stepping up to being data processing units and then running and talking last week about NVIDIA's Docker API to access the functions. And I did call out during the discussion that this is NVIDIA's proprietary API and got someone emailing in here saying, these specialized cards need some sort of programming interface and I'm not sure we're there yet. The older generation cards had some okay-ish BPF support for packet processing offload, but only some vendors had good support. Um, I'm skeptical that these new cards will have some decent software support, at least for the first few generations. And for commercial software vendors that buy into whatever binary blob, it might be okay. But for research and open source, it does not seem promising. And I think I actually called this out uh, last week, Drew, in that if you choose to access the proprietary APIs, you'll be able to move fast but you are then locked into that in the same way that companies using the Broadcom Essex are locked into Broadcom, as we saw with Cumulus Linux, for example. Right. That was the point in discussing this Doka sort of software blob that sits on top of the NVIDIA SmartNIC, or as they call it, a DPU, is that it gives them a little bit of proprietary control mm. over the hardware underneath, just like we've seen Broadcom do. And that does tend to raise eyebrows among some folks who want to see a more open uh, opportunity. Yeah. So the challenge here is that the previous generation of SmartNICs didn't use any particular APIs. You didn't call advanced functions. Mm -hmm. Most of them got their value by supporting accelerated data throughput just by responding to standard requests. So TCP offloads, uh, emulating the BPF stack, integrating with Windows via network drivers to just hand off as much of the processing as possible. But they didn't really change the architecture of the data movement. Whereas DPUs really change that whole idea. It's this, they're actually, instead of making a request to the CPU and then the CPU handing it off to the SmartNIC, which is a traditional approach to accelerating networking IO, the DPU actually gets in there and as the programs run, they call directly APIs. And I think the second part of DPUs that is emerging is that apps are actually running on the DPU. So they are computers in there, all right. They're right. subsystems with apps running. And as we talked about with Dell recently and their Sonic, they're talking about running Sonic on the NIC. So you've actually got a defined operating system and a platform in which you can run containers so that there is an open source. So what I would recommend that you do is go out and have a listen to the podcast we did recently with Dell and Sonic on smart NICs as a starting point and then open up the discussion there. Because I think that we do need 
both open and closed solutions for right. this. The closed solutions can iterate faster, take advantage of new features, accelerated performance. But equally, I think we need an open source Linux which works well everywhere for most people that get some of the way there. But maybe you get 80%, but the last 20% of performance is only from the proprietary APIs or something like that. I could see the smart NIC or DPU space sort of doing like we see now with switches, with white box, where you just want to have full access to a device and not worry about any proprietary components. But there are other people who just want to be able to consume a solution. And that's why I might turn to an NVIDIA one who's working with a, a third-party software vendor to put on some AI processing or security functions. And I just want to consume that and I'm not worried about proprietary and unproprietary. But for the research space or for special use cases, I could see yes wanting a more open opportunity. And we also got a range of different APIs on which to build. There's obviously the OpenFlow. DPDK is now open source, but it may be very specific to Intel's architecture. And that x86 architecture may not lend itself to ARM-based smart NICs. Mm -hmm. And I think most smart NICs will probably be ARM because of the low power requirements of the ARM CPUs. Mm -hmm. Power is a big issue going forward. And enterprise IT doesn't define this technology. It'll be defined by the cloud companies, the mega clouds. And the mega tech companies are Facebook, Google, AWS, Azure, you know, those types of organizations. And for them, power is more important than like consumption of electrical power is actually the overriding issue. And they go to substantial efforts to reduce the power consumption for the output that they can get. They would sacrifice processing power or throughput if it meant using less watts overall. Makes sense. Yeah, so thank you to the listener who raised this issue. It's always good to have a little bit more nuance around the discussion. Uh, we have another FU. This is relating to our conversation about SASE Secure Access Services Edge, which is something we're going to talk about today, and cloud-delivered security. We mentioned that for a lot of the SASE providers, they sort of need some kind of client software to get folks into the cloud, and a listener wrote in to let us know that Zscaler in particular, uh, in his experience, has provided good access software for some time. He's writing... Zscaler has been pushing the software for a while now. This is client software. And we've seen significant development over the past few years. All of our Zscaler deployments involve deploying the software to all user devices. And in some cases, they've even retired the WAN completely, meaning they're not using SD-WAN, they're not using MPLS, mm -hmm. just using Zscaler's uh, private access, all relying on the software on the client <laughs> and dirty internet <laughs> access at each site, he says. <laughs> so I think I did point out last week that Zscaler does have a VPN client, but they're not actively promoting it like they are the other features of their product. Mm -hmm. So what I've much more seen from Zscaler is them promoting their in-cloud service. You just send us your traffic and we'll provide you with the security. They haven't made a big deal about the remote access or the distributed work functionality using their VPN client. And we've done sponsored shows with them. And again, they've taken the chance to emphasize the cloud nature and the fact that their footprint is in the cloud, they're cloud centric. And that was what I was alluding to last week. I wasn't saying that they didn't have one, or if I did, then I didn't mean to, because I do seem to recall definitely saying they have a VPN client, but they don't promote it very much. But then at the same time, interesting to know that this person has deployed it used it and completely replaced their entire WAN in some cases with it. And that is exactly how I see the future of SD-WAN evolving. It's this thick client at the edge of the network. And that will be on a smartphone, on a laptop. And in some cases, it will be an SD-WAN appliance because you have to get the traffic and divert it into these mm -hmm. scanning services some way or another. And I think, the, you know, whatever you call your edge, whether it's a fat client, <laughs> fat hardware device, or a software client, that is the future of the WAN. It won't be a port on a router going forward. 
Yeah, we're going to talk about that a bit more when we get to the news part about VMware's latest announcement, but that's a little mm -hmm. teaser. Uh, we've got one more FU. This is about uh, Microsoft's uh, multi-billion dollar acquisition of Nuance, which does speech recognition software. Um, the, the release sort of positioned Nuance as an opportunity for Microsoft to get into medical speech transcription or getting information into electronic medical record systems. But and, and we sort of wondered about the validity and how well it worked. And we've got somebody writing in to say that... Um, uh, they, they think nuance actually is better than maybe we gave it credit for. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of articles they linked to. Uh, somebody also sent in one about a medical, but we uh, didn't carry that article forward. And they said apparently the in the last two years, nuance has really made strides forward based around their AI and how they're training the speech patterns instead of using the way that they used to do it than the way they're doing it now, that they've really made a huge step forward in medicine, particularly in transcribing doctor-patient conversation straight into the medical records. And maybe that level of quality or that specific thing has value to Microsoft. Another person also emailed us to point out that Nuance spent 10 years buying up every one of its competitors mm -hmm. in the voice transcription space <laughs> and built the largest and most comprehensive patent portfolio. In fact, they own all the patents in the voice-to-text marketplace and basically everybody pays Nuance something. That is attractive to Microsoft, those patent portfolios. Absolutely. So maybe, you know, maybe I just glommed over it a bit quickly because my experience of Nuance as an organization was poor. They were very bad tech support. The product was very difficult to use and maybe it tarnished me a little bit. So I apologize for not putting that aside. They do have some value if they own all those patents. Uh, okay. Not necessarily the best way to have a good product just by owning all the patents and buying out all your <laughs> competitors. But if they have continued to innovate and actually managed to make the product work, then let's wait and see what Microsoft does with it because, uh, Microsoft doesn't always make the best but the best of the opportunities that it takes, shall we right. say? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so we'll make sure those extra links get into this week's show notes. This is show 330 uh, if you want to follow up more about Nuance. Uh, and again, thanks for the FU. If you want uh, to comment on any past or this shows, just go to packetpushers.net slash FU, uh, and we're happy to have your input. All right, let's get to the news. Uh, VMware is now in the SASE business, Secure Access Services Edge. The company announced a sort of new offering called Anywhere Workspace. It combines client software that already had with a cloud-delivered security service that's leveraging uh, pops it has with VMware's Velo Cloud. Uh, the goal is to help enterprises secure remote workers and devices. It supports iOS, Android, Windows, Mac OS, Chrome OS, and others. So coming back to this view that I have, or the thesis that I have, that the edge of the network is a thick client of some sort. And this is in that same direction. So VMware is now saying, we are going to package up our Workspace One, which is their unified endpoint management desktop mm -hmm. and app virtualization. So Workspace One is a combination of VMware, uh, thin client, and employee monitoring solutions and, and security. And then they're bonding it up with the Carbon Black acquisition. And then they're bonding that up with the VMware VelaCloud SD-WAN capability and turning all that into one product. Yeah, so what you get is a Workspace ONE endpoint. Uh, there's also what they, <laughs> I had a briefing with them and I asked about agents and they're like, don't say agents. So uh, the Workspace ONE is you endpoint didn't software. Agents, <laughs> I didn't, didn't say agents. Forget you all the because you, They asked you not to say <laughs> That's agents. That's right, so I didn't say agents. <laughs> <laughs> the word agents has never come up. Please wipe it from your memory. Uh, yes, that's right. So you get the Workspace One client software and also what they call a Carbon Black sensor, which is, again, more software to go on the endpoint. Yep. Uh, the, the Carbon Black does this 
a little bit of local analysis, but can also tap into their cloud threat scanning uh, systems to find malware and uh, malicious code and stuff. Uh, then there's also how they tie that into the SASE service. So VeloCloud, as part of its uh, SD-WAN solution, has a bunch of pops, I guess 100 pops all over the world. So um, what they're doing is you've got this client software. They can now direct your traffic from the client into one of these pops to do the, uh, they've got uh, URL filtering, content inspection, firewalling, and zero trust network access. And they sort of going to expand the capabilities mm. in those pops going forward. And lots of interesting things here. First of all, I think the, the first one I'll pull out is that VMware SASE, which is the VelaCloud, when they acquired VelaCloud, they decided they moved away from the pops. VelaCloud was one of the first organizations to trunk the traffic into the backbone. Right. And I think if I remember rightly, VMware really deprecated that and didn't want to do that for a while and said, we, we don't want to talk about that anymore. We, we're not going to continue forward with that in the product. And now all of a sudden it's come back because that is definitely de jure at the moment, having that global yes. network's points of presence and send your traffic in and now you can apply security to it. You can scan it, you can log it, you can route it anywhere on the internet, you can optimize it, a whole bunch of things, right? Right. So there's a, there's a pivot inside of the VMware VelaCloud SASE type of product. I think the other thing that goes in here is because VMware is taking what is previously three separate products and mm -hmm. trying to bond them into one. Yes. And I think this is well overdue. These products, you know, it was clear two years ago, as soon as SASE came around, that the edge of the network was going to be fat. It was going to have VPN clients and hardware appliances, and the security was going to be deployed there. And that's going to include thin client remote access. So if you choose to have a, you know, whether you're using thick clients at the edge and running Microsoft Word and browsers on the computer, or whether you're running thin client, you know, accessing some sort of uh, remote desktop capability in the data center, all of those things need to be possible. No company is thin client only. They're usually thin clients and fat clients or a combination. They run legacy apps in the thin clients. Right. People run other things. And so this is a recognition that this is what customers are doing and it shouldn't be multiple products. I shouldn't have a half a dozen licenses and spend months of my life negotiating what am I going to buy and three different, this should all just be one product. And I think VMware is taking a step in that direction here. Yeah, I think this is a smart move for VMware to look around and see what they've got and say, yes, we can now move into this market that is very popular and very hot. Um, the the one thing I think to be aware of is that it's still a little bit of a mishmash. So Workspace One is one separate package. The Carbon Black Sensor is another separate package. They have to be downloaded separately, but VMware does say Workspace One as a device management solution can then sort of take over the Carbon Black Sensor yeah. and manage it for you. But it's not quite a fully integrated product yet to my mind. Yeah, but that's where they'll have to go. I'm sure this they is, will. This is a problem for big companies. They can't do that. They can't, you know, if you've got three different products and you're trying to turn them into one, they naturally resist that. Right. Right? right. They don't want to disappear. They've got profit lines and bonus plans and executives who don't want to work and, you know, they want to be in charge and the other executive wants, you know, that sort of big business stuff. And unless the VMware executive team really comes out and says, no, no, this is one product. You are one profit, bottom line. Um, there's, a, there's a saying from uh, in, the, in the cloud industry is that your technology product is a reflection of your internal organization. Uh -huh. And as long as VMware has these separate business units, these products are never going to integrate. Cisco's got the same problem. Right. HPE got rid of its problem by getting rid of all the companies that wouldn't integrate, like just shoot through them all over the fence. Uh -huh. So, you know, Cisco's got the same problem with its portfolio. It's got Cisco VIP Teller and then it's got Umbrella and then it's got the DNS firewall and then it's got the monitoring software is over here and they're all these disparate business units who don't talk to each other and they all go out and sell 
to the customer individually. They don't unify. And all of these companies have to drive together. It has to become one product because that's what AWS and Azure are doing. They provide one product in a unified menu of choices. It's not unified, but it's, it is consistent. It's coherent at, at some level, not as if you're not on getting it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, this was the logical move for VMware. And if they can at least make the licensing easier, the consumption easier, that's great. But just if you're going to use this product, be aware that you may still be able to see some of the seams, some of the stitching. And hopefully they'll yeah. get to work on that to make it more seamless. Yeah, this is this is a step. This is the announcement. And then what we're doing is pointing out where it's going. Yes, that's right. All right, links in the show notes if you want to read up more about it. Uh, let's move on. Last week, we covered some highlights from NVIDIA's annual conference. We didn't get to everything, so here's a few other items that bubbled up because, Greg, you did a lot of digging into the announcements that came out. Yeah, there was one thing that I didn't cover last week was that people started talking about NVIDIA was selling server ARM CPUs in the server, and this was its NVIDIA Grace product. And I just wanted to take a type of a spin on that and say that it, that's not what they said. What they said is... We are going to include ARM cores in front of the GPUs so that when you're doing AI and ML, you can actually do the compute that you need associated with your AI and ML on ARM cores that are actually adjacent to the GPUs and connected to the GPUs using NVLink. Now, Stephen Foskett had a video on this, and he's quite an expert in this area as an observer and an analyst type thing. He said, Grace is a highly specialized processor targeting workloads such as the training of next generation NLP models that have more than 1 trillion parameters. When tightly coupled with NVIDIA GPUs, a Grace CPU-based system will deliver 10 times faster performance than today's state-of-the-art NVIDIA DGX-based systems, which run on x86 CPUs. So if you can imagine, the system is really just specific to this AI. So it's a server, but it's not running Windows or Linux. Mm. It's running uh, this AI software that you can just hand off the ML, AI ML processing load to, and it will be able to process it. And the heart of this is the NVLink, which is um, NVIDIA's bus architecture that goes between CPUs and memory and GPUs that is substantially faster, sometimes 30 times faster than the PCI bus of the Intel portfolio. And that's where they're saying it's going to be coming from. And particularly where NVIDIA uses the Grace project to talk to LPDDR5X memory, and it uses NVLink to talk to that memory, and that will deliver twice the bandwidth, but 10 times better energy efficient compared with DDR4. So it's not server CPUs that they're shipping, it's AI servers with this specific architecture that's optimized for AI and ML. That makes sense? It makes very much sense. It's not, they're not shipping a general purpose server that's using ARMS as a CPU. They're using ARMS in this special purpose server for special purpose functions to help accelerate processing. Yes. Almost like the same idea as what the SmartNIC is, if you want to think about it, like the DPU. Right. The DPU is a computer in its own right, and it's got its own hardware architecture. It's got an ASIC doing the, the packet forwarding. It's got a ARM cores and a flash drive and memory modules so that you can run apps on it. Conceptually, this is kind of similar, except it's the whole server. You're using ARM CPUs in there, but they're, they've got a completely different internal architecture. So not immediately obvious what's going on there until you dig away at it. And NVIDIA hasn't actually introduced an ARM server for the data center. They've introduced an ARM server for AI, which would be in the data center, but it's not a standard data center server, right. if you like. Right, okay. Uh, the other thing about uh, that happened that I didn't get to touch on last week and I wish I had of, notably not mentioned at all during last week's NVIDIA conference was Mellanox switches and Cumulus networks. Nothing. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> 
which I thought was uh, pretty interesting uh, in that, you know, they've made all that acquisition there, but they did do a lot of talking about this rack scale architecture idea. So remember I just talked about this AI-based server. Mm -hmm. NVIDIA doesn't just sell a server to do AI. They sell them at a sort of like a rack at a time and you buy clumps of servers with clumps of storage and really high I.O., and I suspect that NVIDIA is working on the Mellanox Cumulus networking portfolio to make it fit into that. And it might only ever ship as part of that, perhaps. That could be. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess I will I, say that you know, I take your point that they didn't spend any time talking about switching uh, or a network OS, but Mellanox did get its points in because NVIDIA spent a lot of time talking about the Bluefield DPUs, which is a, a Mellanox product. So. It may have been it is very much hand, on the DPUs because that's yeah. very adjacent to their AI. You know, getting 400 gigabits per second off their AI servers, absolutely, mm -hmm. you know, a, a feature and something to announce. But I suspect, you know, what are you going to do? Plug them into Mellanox switches, which, by the way, don't do 400 gig yet, although they have a switch, an ASIC in the pipeline that can do 400 gigs. So maybe we'll see something later this year. And there's always next year. Mm -hmm. Okay, so one last note on NVIDIA. Um, the UK government is temporarily halting NVIDIA's purchase of ARM from SoftBank. The BBC reports that the UK's independent competition authority is studying the transaction and will deliver a report before a decision will be made on the purchase, whether to let it go or to try to block it. So I think I indicated at the first announcement that NVIDIA was buying ARM, that it was unlikely that they would be able to. And that the reasons for that would be complex, in part because the ARM CPUs are just in so many different companies' technologies, like mm -hmm. Apple and you know Samsung, and and the ARM CPU is licensed technology and it's embedded everywhere. I imagine that even if the British government, which right now sees ARM as a key player in the technology market, and it doesn't want to see that tech leadership go somewhere else, the current UK government you know, leaving Europe, claiming that it can now make jobs in the UK and do take control of our destiny. We're not answerable to the Europe, you know, the EU um, system, which would have just blithely waved goodbye to it and off it went. They can now actively intervene and say no. And the government, the UK government here definitely wants to be seen as a tech leader, mm -hmm. just the same as the US government is making all sorts of gum flappy noises about, you know, we tech and blah, blah, blah. We're going to make sure that we're a leading tech company. Well, I think the UK government's going to do the same. But also keep in mind that the Chinese government has a say here right. in that there are arm operations in China and convincing the Chinese government to sell arm to NVIDIA, which is a US company, is yep. also a tall ask. Yes. So my gut feel here is that NVIDIA wants to buy arm, but it won't be able to. And this is just another roadblock and probably an, un, an immovable roadblock that, that well, they can't get past. Oh, are you confident enough to put that on the prediction spreadsheet that it won't go through? Yeah, I think so. I think that you I'm not totally confident here. It's, this is not a gold plated. There's politics <laughs> is a. <laughs> it's a fluid, it's a fluid dance. It's, it's a fluid situation. You know, it's possible that NVIDIA could offer something to the UK government. Like we'll set up a, a fab, you know, a silicon factory somewhere in the UK, you know, or something like that. Right, that, or promise know. to make sure that ARM's headquarters stay in Cambridge, uh, where it currently is, instead of moving to the US or something like that. Yeah, but that's, you know, that's not going to fly or whatever. I think it has to be more than just, uh, mm -hmm. the, we promise, you know, <laughs> we promise, you know, pinky swear right. sort of thing. It has to be a bit more substantial. Sure. Um, and who knows how it would work. Uh, but I think the Chinese government has to pass that 
I think the Indian government also has to pass it through its competition. I would suspect that the momentum is against them. Okay, well, this is definitely a story we'll be revisiting. Yeah. All right, uh, there's also a story we're covering on the rich communication services, which I guess is intended to be a successor to SMS in the messaging space. Yeah, this has been around for a long time, and I believe we talked about it. It's been a year or so since we last talked about this, Drew. And my prediction at the time is that RCS will fail because it is in the network. And what the thing that I'm, I've learned in the last 20 years of networking, perhaps, where I was sort of thinking, is whenever we do a technology that's in the network, that is built into the 5G network or built into the switches and routers or built, it always fails somehow. Like it's like BGP. It atrophies, it's static, and it can't easily be changed. And RCS was intended to be a successor for SMS. It was mooted about a decade ago or longer. And the last incarnation was a cross-carrier messaging initiative, which was a forum for the US telcos to get together and agree to interoperate their RCS. And you can see where this is going right at this point. Interoperable RCS deployments between telcos, and it just went nowhere. So the whole point here is that I believe that RCS has been a move by Google in particular, who put uh, support for RCS into Android. And I think it's because governments have been saying, we want to have open, accessible messaging, just like we have an SMS that Mm. we can tap at any Uh time. So Uh lawful intercept. Yep. And people said, well, we can implement a successor to RCS and then we can put that out there and then customers can use that instead of using WhatsApp and iMessage, you know, all these And of course, by the time this has all come around and the telcos don't really want to have to implement RCS servers inside their network, they've got to buy software and deploy it and then upgrade all of their 4G towers to support the RCS signaling, right? Not. Mm. And by the time it all came around, they went like, are we really ever going to convince WhatsApp and Twitter to go away? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Or iMessage or any other encrypted over-the-top signal, you know, those types of things. Yep. And uh, I think what this is sort of like another nail in that coffin. Anytime you hear anybody talk about RCS or rich communication services, just shake your head and say, that's nice. That's nice. (laughs) (laughs) A little pat on the head. (laughs) A little pat on the head, you know, be condescending. Just just a touch condescending and say, do read up, do read up. But I think the lesson for me is it's a reminder that when you do something in the network and not over the top of the network, the reasons for it to fail are much greater. That's not to say that things that happen in the network will always fail, but they will nearly always fail because doing stuff inside the network means every device in the network or all the systems in the network have to be interoperable. So getting, you know, uh, cooperation between all the operators is now, it's much easier now to set up something over the top and start working. Right, just keep that transport and stop messing around inside the network. Although I think I probably heard a thousand FUs start to get typed as you mentioned that BGP had failed. I, I don't think you quite meant that it failed, just that it isn't always a good idea to keep shoving well, things a, into a protocol. Yeah, well, I think the real there's a sort of a realization, slow realization coming across the industry that BGP isn't is not awful, but it's not good, right? Mm-hmm. But equally, there's a recognition that we can't change it because it's in the network. Mm. So if you want to change BGP, how are you going to change it while it still runs? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh. Yep. And, <laughs> and that, you know, we just did this uh, Packet Pushes live stream last week with Alkira, and their answer was just to build something on top of the network. Right. They don't, they're not interested in the network at all. They're just building nodes in clouds and pops, and you send the traffic in, and they'll route it around the internet optimally using their own algorithms and finding optimal paths, whether it's using cloud provider backbones or public backbone. They'll do whatever it needs to be 
to find the best path for your traffic and add your fine, you know, but they're not doing it in the network. Right. And no, it's I all know every time we sit down and talk top. to Arma about it, he gets a smile on his face because he doesn't have to buy hardware. <laughs> right. <laughs> all right. Well, the whole BGP issue is probably just a heavy networking conversation uh, somewhere mm. down the road, but let's move on. We have a brief interruption to tell you about our sponsor today, Dell Technologies. They're helping enterprise customers pave the way for transforming their networks with innovative open networking offerings and global support and services. And a key component of this journey are the commercial versions of open source Sonic, both within the data center and further. Sonic is based on Linux and a containerized architecture. It can help organizations build out data centers for hyperscale growth, along with the flexibility of implementing only the functions they need. As demand increases for supporting network functions closer to workloads at the edge and in the cloud, the logical step is advancing networking capabilities in SmartNICs, or more recently, DPUs, as we were talking about. The modularity of Sonic and the use of the open programming language P4 makes it ideal as an intelligent and flexible OS for DPUs. Much like in the data center, Sonic can help DPUs at the edge or cloud maximize performance, enable fine-grained network programmability, and benefit from a robust open source community. If you want to find out more, go to dellTechnologies.com slash networking. That's dellTechnologies.com slash networking. And we have done some sponsored shows with Dell on their Sonic initiatives. If you want to search on packetpushers.net to get more information. We sure did. And it was a good chat too. It just sort of changed my thinking around how DPUs can work. And I like the fact that um, Dell is jumping into the open source angle. Right. Yeah. And giving you a supported version of Sonic, which I think is one of those things that Sonic needs to get more traction is some support. Mm -hmm. All right. Moving on back to the news, Juniper Networks, they've announced new hardware for the metro access and aggregation market, as well as a new framework they're calling Cloud Metro. The goal is to transform metro networks into a fabric to support resource pooling, network slicing for differentiated service profiles for different kinds of applications and automation. New toys, I think, isn't it? New it's, toys, it's, two new, two new routers. Really Two new routers. Who knew? Oh, <laughs> hardware. <laughs> um, so Metro Networks is a substantial market for networking products and traditionally for the networking vendors, the traditional networking vendors. And the era of Metro Ethernet uh, for short-haul high-speed network is fading as the increases in bandwidth are, are changing. So we're seeing so much bandwidth at the edge of the network. Um, and the net people who operate those Metro Ethernet networks imagine that they can provide varied services. So if only they had a network that was more than just connecting endpoints together, right. if they could slice it and cross it and application recognize it, maybe they could do something that would like, they could charge Netflix more money for their downloads or something. Right. That's the whole idea is that instead of just being that transport layer, the aggregation layer, they can actually add value, value add uh, with this Juniper technology, which includes the hardware we talked about, but also Juniper's uh, Paragon automation suite, which we had also talked about in a previous show. And so I imagine there's a lot of segment routing going on in there yep. and then the softwares and you can create the paths. I think also um, we're seeing this transition from like, one gig to 10 gig fiber optic ethernet to 100 gig fiber optic ethernet to 400 gig and up. So you need to rotate those routers. And of course we saw Juniper and Cisco both buy optical vendors this year, uh, last year, uh, so that they can have the, the SFPs, like the optical modules, mm -hmm. they supply them as part of the business. And this is a big reason for that is because they believe that there's going to be a massive refresh in these Metro ethernet networks from, you know, 10 gig to 100 gig to 400 gig and having that optics in vertically integrated will increase their total revenue take around that. But I think we'll also start to see IP fabrics emerge. So where we talked about Metro being Metro Ethernet, and then customers can either choose to Ethernet across them or to IP. So you can always route across an Ethernet segment if uh -huh. you choose. Uh -huh. 
a lot of customers just didn't actually think of that and just thought, are you giving me Ethernet? So I'd better Ethernet. Um, anyway, um, I think increasingly what we're going to see is that it'll be replaced with an IP, but an IP over DWDM. And I think these routers are a step in that direction where they start to move to having uh, DWDM edge connectivity as well. And just their a, plans. Yep. Just a note on the routers, there's two new routers in the ACX family. The first is the 7148L. It's got 10, 25, and 50 gig Ethernet on service ports. And the 7132C has fan out density for 100 and 400 gigabit Ethernet. And both these are 1RU routers running Broadcom Silicon. More bandwidth solves all problems, Drew. <laughs> That's absolutely right. <laughs> I say that all the time. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> All right, moving on. Itential, they compete in the network automation space. They announced a 20 million Series B investment. Itential competes with Glueware, Anuda Networks, Appster, and others. The company says it's going to use this money to drive out its core offerings and build out its SaaS capability. Uh, and Itential was founded in 2014. Uh, this B round brings its total VC funding to date to 25 million. And this is a 20 million investment. So Itential got where it was on a fairly tight budget. Drew. Yeah, 5 million. That's not bad. 5 million for, you know, to get to Series A is really quite tight. And they've got a nice little portfolio around the automation uh, and leaning into the orchestration aspects. We've done a number of shows with them. And I think the product's really interesting. Um, mm -hmm. And the need for automation and orchestration remains high. And I think my sense of it is that still most companies have not yet moved even to automation. And the ones who have of sort of using small-scale Python Ansible to do sort of limited scope automation of small-scale functions so mm -hmm. far. And I, I think there's so much more potential for this market to really emerge and when customers start to realize that it would be easier to lean into an expertise of somebody who does this all day than to do this yourself. So um, I think Itential's got good chances of making it here. And Obviously, so do investors because they gave them some more money to do exactly that. Right. Four times the first round of investment. So that's an encouraging sign, I think. Yes. And the VC who invested in the company is now on the board as well, which uh, so I would expect we'll see a big sales push through. Usually this sort of size investment is about getting the sales and marketing going. Right. Because the first phase has proven that they've got a viable product. They've got viable customers. There's a market share that they've identified. So now I think it's a... Uh, what they call a go-to-market strategy and uh, <laughs> land and expand or some such, you know, some of this business wallet that they all run around doing. But yes. Activate the sales force. Life. Yes. Yep. If you haven't looked at their products, go and have a poke and understand and think about how they're approaching their automation. It's worth doing. Yeah, network automation. So check it out. Uh, moving on, you're likely aware of silicon chip shortages and its effect on the supply chain. Uh, Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger said the shortage could take, quote, a couple of years, unquote, to work itself out. And that's according to an interview he gave with The Washington Post. I just want to continue with this. We sort of raised this a couple of times. And the first couple of times I sort of felt like we didn't understand how systemic or how deep this runs. And I also wondered at the time whether this was like American chip makers like Intel you know, gunning for a handout from the US government. <laughs> well, that's there, but yes. <laughs> uh, but I think we're sort of getting to the point where, you know, it's becoming very clear that this is actually a deep-seated issue. And we're probably at the point now where companies who are ordering chips are actually going to order over-order chips. Normally they would buy just in time, just buy what they need, and that would smooth out the production flow. But as soon as you get the shortage in supply or even rumors of shortage in supply, companies will always order a bit more, you know, 20% more, 40% more, and that'll compound the problem. 
So all of a sudden, all the capacity disappears. Yeah, they also interviewed uh, someone else in the story who said that companies are making multiple orders with multiple suppliers just to ensure that they actually get what they need, which again, compounds that problem because which order is actually going to go through? So you've got people ordering more than they need and also ordering more than they need from multiple suppliers, which again, uh -huh. feeds into this whole issue. So take, for example, car companies, car manufacturers. Yep. Some of the car manufacturers here in the UK this week just announced that they're going to be idling their plants because they've run out of chips for certain items inside of their cars. Yes, same it in the US. That, yeah, really simple chips, the ones in odometers, you know, the ones that do the show uh -huh. your current speed and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And they, they're like 50 cent chips. <laughs> they're oh, wow. Hugely complicated <laughs> or sophisticated, you know, all front end. These are just fairly basic everyday chips that are just not being manufactured because there's not sufficient capacity. Huh. And uh, uh, there's a whole range. So I just want to continue to push with this. The, the impact of this is yet to show up, I think, for most enterprise customers and may never. It may actually see you go to the public cloud because it might be quicker and easier to not buy hardware and go to the public cloud if you have supply chain difficulties. But it may also be worth knowing that you might want to flag it if you have projects planned for this year uh, move into the purchasing phase earlier than you otherwise might on the basis that delivery might be 6, 12, 18 weeks, 24 weeks, something like that. Yeah, and even if it doesn't necessarily affect the networking industry, it's definitely affecting the automotive industry around the world, medical device manufacturers, uh, gaming systems. Um, so, you know, the first two are very critical uh, to our infrastructure, so... Yeah, I just it's just one of those things. Yeah, You know, I just keep flagging with the information that I've got you check out the links in the show notes, you can see the source information on from what we're extrapolating or providing some analysis and review and, you know, how we come to our thesis. So there you go. That's this also there. does tie into this whole broader push in the United States uh, for more homegrown uh, silicon manufacturing capabilities. And as you mm. mentioned, Greg, the uh, homegrown U.S. companies are looking for the government to step in and then make some investments in this space. Um, to, to to spur that growth. I don't know why they can't <laughs> yeah. do it themselves, but yes, they're they're looking yeah, to the apparently. government. Well, for some you know, money. free money is free money, Drew. You yeah, you know, they, but the EU has the same issue. It also wants to see some of this technology developed in Europe. And so it's going to become an interesting political football as we go forward. Yeah. All right, let's finish up with a little bit of space networking. There's a thoughtful blog post on the APNIC site about the unintended consequences of successful space-based broadband services. So this, the, the simplifying the blog post down, once space networking arrives, as, as Starlink has, has done and certainly shows great promise, which you have to see the final product and we're yet to see what it looks like under load and there are viable questions about how it works. This article sort of digs into those a little bit and says, if you can get okay, not really very good, but okay space link, you know, space networking, does that stop you building out broadband using trenching fiber into the ground or hanging mm -hmm. it on poles? Mm -hmm. And the answer there is, of course, if you're a very rural, space link, Starlink is wonderful. If you're right on the edge of a, a major built-up area and they're just starting to build out some broadband to your houses and people start putting in Starlink because they can get it going today, do the broadband carriers actually then go and trench fiber into the ground and cop it to the last mile? Or do they just you know, when they have to compete with Starlink. That's an interesting point. It is an interesting point. He also mentions that um, the way Starlink works, because you have to share beams with hitting satellites, that the more people in your direct area using Starlink could affect your own performance so that the more popular Starlink gets, the worse the performance could get, which is compounded by the fact that if broadband providers aren't building out to your area and your only option is space mm -hmm. networking, there you get sort of a vicious circle. 
which is why Starlink is pitching for extra bandwidth from extra spectrum from the FCC. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're seeing the, the interest and they're hoping the FCC will give them more spectrum to, I think, in the six gigahertz range, if I recall, a few right. weeks. Anyway, you know, whatever it is, it'll turn up in time. Um, and if they can get that without having to pay for it, that is not having to license it, that would be very good for a technology startup. They love free stuff. They're very good at making, getting free stuff, <laughs> yes. governments particularly. Um, and uh, so it is just a viable thing to say that if space networking comes, it, to my mind, the best networking remains cable in the ground to your house. You will never get 300 meg up, down, you know, from your yeah. Starlink yeah. service, right? It's always going to be latent and have capacity problems because it's a shared spectrum and and so on and so forth. I yeah, I mean, I think broadband. it's yeah. a fair point that he raises that this is further incentive to not build out broadband. And here in the U.S., particularly, we've spent decades and millions and millions and millions of dollars trying to encourage providers to build out access, and we've had limited success. So I understand why people are turning to Starlink and others, because there's nothing else for them. Uh, but that's if it right. has that yeah. vicious circle effect, then that's uh, unfortunate. Now, keep in mind that these broadband networks also use the backbone networks that you use for corporate access. And this is also, as we talk about distributed work and people move out to the edge, this has a direct impact on enterprise IT going forward. If you want to take advantage of people working remotely, they need to have sufficient bandwidth. Yep. I question whether Starlink is sufficient at scale over time. There is reasons to doubt that Starlink can you know, offer the sort of low latency access you need to do remote work. Right. So if you're thinking of decamping to a ranch in Montana uh, to write your software, you definitely consider <laughs> the implications here. <laughs> yes. Starling white work today, but in three years, maybe it, maybe it doesn't, you know, yeah, it's unproven in that sense. So what, what bets you make, you should be careful what bets you make. All right. Links in the show notes as always, if you want to find out more for yourself, that does wrap up our news portion of Network Break. Stay tuned. We've got a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with Nokia. We're talking about Nokia Fabric Services and how it automates data center fabric management. That's starting right now. Welcome to the Tech Bytes podcast from the Pack of Pushers. Operating a data center fabric is a substantial operational challenge. Automation is proving that reliable, fast change works and delivers real business value. We've been talking about this software operation of networks for a while, and we're well into the cycle now where people are using it, and they've been deploying these software tools and showing real returns to the business and also a better lifestyle for engineers. Nokia Fabric Services System embraces the software transition to deliver fabric management of your data center network. Fabric Services System, of course, embraces the functionality of their Nokia Service Router Linux, or SR Linux for short, and brings intent-based automation to your data center fabric. I'm speaking with Fanny Nognogandhi about Nokia Fabric Services System. Let's get straight into the details. Fanny, for modern, highly scalable data centers, we've seen a lot of this, and this is this high-density, 40, 100-gig type stuff. What are the drivers that you think are for a good fabric automation solution? Yeah, the good drivers is, you know, this is not a new term. A lot of things have been talked too much by various vendors and kind of been coined by one or two large vendors. But when you look at the larger automation at scale problem, there is technically no other way than delivering automations via intent. If you don't take an intent-based approach and you're trying to configure every small box with every possible network knob and make sure there are no human errors, those, that is just not a scalable way of designing or deploying network automation. So we 
we honestly or strongly believe that automations at scale can only be delivered by intent. And that is the starting point of a scalable data center fabric automation. There's lots of different ways to come at a tent, but the one that I currently use or the way I'm currently thinking about it is intent is I want to configure a, a, you know, a thing, right? And at the end of the day, you can boil it down and there might be a few different ways to configure it, but you're going to configure it a way for me. That's intent. I want this outcome. I want this server connected to this VLAN, which is in this EVPN, and you're going to go and just do that for me. That's a simple description of intent. That's correct, Greg. Just focus on the what and how it is done is up to the implementation of the intent-based automation system. And in our case, we explicitly try to make sure that we, we take an abstract intent approach. What it, what it means is that the guy who is sitting in front of our automation platform and trying to automate a large-scale data center network, he doesn't need to know the lowest level of networking knobs and only focuses on, let's say, physical aspects like just tell me how many racks you're trying to build this fabric for. Mm-hmm. And that is good enough for us to build all the way from day zero design topology and actually deploying it with zero touch end to end underlay as well as in, in going forward for all the overlay part of the aspects as well. But the technology that's underneath this is all standards. Uh, is that right? So you're using SR Linux, Nokia's SR Linux, which is the new operating system with standard EVPN type constructs. It's just the software doing the, well, what I think of as the tedious work of, of doing that. That's correct. You know, so, so Greg, not only we try to comply to uh, what I call as open on wire, meaning anything that goes under the wire has to be standards compliant, mm. whether it is data plane, like what VXLAN encapsulation we use or any other future MPLS or segment routing encapsulations we will use versus any control plane. Everything has to be standard based and it has to be open on wire. Absolutely. You know? I, I like that idea, really, because the software is in, if you wanted to, you could find that maybe you want to change away from something or you want to be able to understand what's happening in the actual switch fabric itself and you want to see what the MPLS EVPN looks like, you can go down there and show the commands and you can get that feedback if that's important for you. But it's standard common skills. It's not some proprietary protocol doing its thing. That's correct, Greg. Basically, you know, trying to balance out the ability to do deliver some easy buttons mm. so that the day-to-day life of the operator is simple. And more importantly, you know, you got to make sure that the human error is reduced. Try to drive the human error to as close as possible to zero. Mm. Because, you know, people think sometimes automations is about saving manoeuvres. I mean, I, I, I've been spending like, 15 years on data center side of the market. I've worked with all the Wall Street and various large enterprises. In I, I, can't, I won't take the name of the customer, but let's see. One simple human error triggered like close to $10 million of loss. Mm-hmm. So the automation angle is not just about reducing the maneuvers. Keep in mind when the vendor tests, qualifies and delivers an automation for a given fabric, the customer is going to inherit the less human errors also. So that's one of the key value add I think people miss. Uh, It's not just about, hey, give me a scripted automation versus uh, we have a sophisticated automation that we call as fabric services. Yeah. Uh, What's the difference, you know? Yeah. Well, I think there's a few things here. One is 
that these automations, these intent-based systems, turn you towards good work. They free you up so that you can do more useful work, focusing on, I don't know, security auditing or uh, doing better research on your next acquisition cycle or spending more time on projects that make a difference to the company. I don't see it as spending less work. I see it as doing better work overall. And that's what I like about it. I want to shift the discussion here a little bit to um, that it's also a reality that for most data centers that the IP fabric that you build doesn't stand alone. It has to integrate with other systems. Does the fabric services system integrate sideways? Does it have that federation capability? It does. You know, we are very conscious from the beginning, ground up. We basically have to make sure that we can coexist with the surrounding ecosystems. And typically, I take the examples of any software-defined data center platforms like a VMware or an OpenStack or a Kubernetes. Uh, and in these ecosystems, the network is only one of the player, one of the uh, citizen over there. So you need to not just deliver your networking part, but you also need to tightly integrate with the surrounding ecosystem. That's when the customer really gets the value out of it. See if I, so Greg, if I define the overall intent, what does this conceptually mean to an engineer to engineer? It's what his intent is, hey, look, I have a desired state. That mm -hmm. is my intent. And I want to drive the network towards that desired state. If the current state is equal to the desired state, you're good. Yeah. If the current state has deviated, I need to do my best to make sure that I will basically uh, enable the kind of automation that will drive towards uh, making the current state equal to the desired state, right? right. Yeah. Now, where exactly is that desired state coming from? Actually speaking, it's coming from the application workloads. So you need to better understand what is the desired state for those given applications that are getting onboarded. Yeah. And that close, tight integration with the surrounding ecosystem is a very important piece. A network by itself cannot do its job, you know? What you're alluding to here is that customers might be running VMware or Kubernetes on top of the, the fabric that you're building, right? And you want the Kubernetes containers, you've got some sort of service mesh or you've got, maybe you're using Kubernetes native networking and you want to put these containers into this VLAN. Well, that means that you then have to start configuring the eVPN to move those VLANs to be where the server is. And then you might want to set up some other rules. There's a bunch of integration that you can have between VMware NSX or Kubernetes API so that you can actually do all that automatically or without... Uh, you can capture that as intent. If it happens, then I just want my fabric to reconfigure itself. That's correct, Greg. And even before things like NSX come into the picture, what happens is in the VMware ecosystem, basic foundational services like the vSAN or the vMotion, all these guys, they need uh, some network plumbing and uh, the hypervisors themselves can come in and go. There's a lot of dynamism as well, you know. So before even you hit the application, some of these foundational services also need zero human errors, need clear automations, such a tight coupling with the software-defined data center ecosystem that the network should kind of become invisible, meaning it should be so tightly integrated within the ecosystem that as the virtual admin starts creating his resources, mm. uh, you know, network just needs to follow it. 
obviously network will become visible when there is a problem. It's fascinating to me that this idea that you could go into Kubernetes and instantiate a container and then makes a, a call to the fabric services system to say, I need you to present this uh, VLAN to this system so that I can route the packets and so forth. And that just kind of happens. And it's boggling That's- compared to where we've been. Yeah, I mean, that machine-to-machine automations need to happen, Greg. There's no way with this kind of scale and this kind of dynamism, you you don't want the human to get into the picture and try to do these things manually or potentially make mistakes, you know. And Kubernetes is, again, a very good example, you know. It delivers that open pluggable architecture, right? So vendors like Nokia or even anybody, you know, they can go insert their custom operators and try to stitch the application world with the network or the fabric side of things. But at the end of the day, drive the application's desired state to be the current state in the network. You know, whatever the role network needs to play, it needs to be in line with what the application wants. Uh, yeah. And so I guess the, the next section I we normally talk about, when we start talking about fabric automation, we start talking about uh, knowing what's happening in the fabric. Because once we've got software controlling the, the IP fabric, we want to talk about visibility and analytics and observability. It, what's the sort of functionality that Nokia is bringing to the FSS in that section? So I think we got to learn and take a page from the application side of the world as the applications evolve to more distributed microservices. Initially, they focused on automations with all the moving parts. They did a good job of automations, but when observability was not done right, it was so difficult to root cause. And at the end of the day, the deployment and the day two plus operations get affected. And the thing about Kubernetes is it ground up takes care of not just automations, but also the observability aspects of these lots of moving parts. And when you take a page out of that and apply it to networking, that's what we as Nokia are doing, where we are giving equal importance and ground up design for both automations and observability at the same time. When I talked about that desired state and current state, current state is about grabbing all the information about what is the state of the network. And I'm simplifying it, but there's so many attributes that you look at on the network that forms the current state and make an intelligent decision on what things adjusted will make sure that we fall, we ensure that the desired state of the operator is maintained. And from that point of view, Greg, Uh, You will see the usual suspects. We'll collect all kinds of metrics, all kinds of telemetry data. Mm -hmm. But how do you make sense out of it? Try to extract the insight out of it. That's going to be the key focus for us. I think another part about this too is because we're configuring everything the same way and consistently in a specific way, it gets a lot more consistent in what you want to monitor because really an IP fabric is about... Uh, some fairly consistent metrics that you want to see. You want to know, is the port up? You want to know how much percentage utilization it is. You might want to know how much traffic is flowing in a given EV LAN. You might want to know what's the CPU running on the devices. But it's fairly consistent when you get into a modern IP fabric. The observability can be very detailed because it's very consistent. Is that a reasonable statement? It is reasonable. And that starts from uh, the overall architectural thinking also. We are all engineers at heart, right? And all the good engineers will appreciate the simplicity 
in the overall scalable data center deployments, I mean, Facebook, the Lupukov draft, all those guys preached the same, right? Guys, let's simplify the overall protocol like Exotica and for a given data center network, for a given BGP-based IP fabric, hmm. when you simplify things and you're consistently configuring every device in the same way, the, it, it allows you to monitor a bunch of metrics and those small set of metrics will give you enough visibility to root cause majority of the problems. I wouldn't say that um, the observability doesn't get complicated, but believe me, the simplification starts from day zero design itself. If you yeah. want to design all kinds of topologies and fabrics and all kinds of protocols, it gets complicated and that maps to the observability aspect also. Right. Uh, yeah. So really, this is this is a, a full intent-based networking solution for the data center fabric. It's got all the features that you would expect in this product. It's got the abstracted intent. You've got the north and southbound APIs. You've got the integration with VM, you know, tools like VMware and Kubernetes, so that you can do the automated instantiation via you know, normal tools that you want to see, but it also runs on top of SR Linux. Let's just recap what SR Linux is for people who might have missed the other podcast. Say uh, 30 seconds. Yeah, SR Linux, you know, we took the strong routing pedigree from our SR OS and we modeled a completely ground up a new management framework, which I call it as a modular model driven, you know, mm -hmm. people have been delivering model driven for some time, but the modularity within SR Linux is to such an extent that you can get extract information all the way to a detailed hardware table, mm -hmm. or you can bring your own component and define new data models and extend the operating system. So if you think about it conceptually, it is like bringing microservices to the network operating system, you know, that <laughs> modular model driven, yep. not only enables an open and uh, extendable thing, uh, but also that modularity helps you build a loosely coupled extensions. I kind of, you know, we've had a couple of, you know, quite long discussions around SR Linux on the network on packet pushes. And one of the things that struck me about it was that you sort of waited in a sense until to see all the mistakes that other people have made. And you started from the ground up, like it's a fresh build. It's not a rework of a legacy technology or taking 50% or 70% of another platform and trying to strap a, a rocket engine on the outside of it for intent base. This is actually a full ground up rewrite considering That's with correct. all the lessons that you can see around you, I think. That's correct, Greg. But but to be uh, very honest, it's not like we intentionally waited. Yeah. The point is, I think we were lucky enough to have an opportunity to implement at a later time okay. and also with help of some few large customers who were able to guide us. Uh, I mean, speaking from the heart as an engineer, you know, it's not like other vendors uh, don't have the right engineers, you know, it's, it's the opportunity to build, let's say in 2018 or 2019, you know, <laughs> uh, versus your operating system, if it was built in beginning of 2000s. So it, it, it's, it's when you have implemented at, by that time, we already had a lot of the distributed microservices and the whole thing yeah. happening on the application side. Right. So. Well, we've seen a couple of startups stumble here 
like this is, you know, uh, this this idea of a modular container microservices architected NOS is something that quite a few companies have attempted and stum- and failed to deliver. So it is a testament to the fact I mean, that there you've is been able the, to- it's a double-edged sword, Greg. If you overdo it, if you overdo the uh, microservices, you get into too many moving parts. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, see, it's as simple as this. You have to decompose, deliver a lot of, uh, loosely coupled services and at the end of the day you have to recompose them as a single network operating system also mm-hmm. so when you decompose and recompose you got to be careful if you overdo it just for theoretical reasons uh, trying to drive and deliver a GA quality network operating system is not an easy job you know so fabric services system it must be microservices oriented as well Absolutely. We are not only Kubernetes, we exploit a lot of Kubernetes functionalities and our business logic itself is a very containerized and highly distributed microservices. What does that mean for me as a customer, right? So I I had plenty of vendors say to me, oh yeah, no, we're using a Kubernetes microservices containerized platform for our intent-based software. As a customer, what does that mean in terms of fabric services system? Does it mean it like goes faster? Does it upgrade easier? What, what's the value there? Yeah, that's a good question, Greg. And I face that with a lot of our customers as well. And you hit on one of it, which is independently upgradable modules, right? Let's say you have an issue within one of the functionality and hopefully we have done a good job of creating functional boundaries. Let's say something who is taking care of underlay is within a microservice and mm. something who is taking care of a overlay is in a separate microservice. So you could fix, or even when you're trying to deliver new features, the feature velocity also increases yeah. uh, and you still deliver uh, high quality because of that loosely coupled aspect. But again, I go back to that, Greg, we got to be careful based on the nature of the application. You got to utilize that microservices uh, pattern as, uh, to to the level it where it applies. If you overdo it, let's say just because a banking yeah, company, don't, but, yeah. you don't want a Kubernetes just for the sake of Kubernetes. You want to actually Correct. make sure that there's a business. So you've got to be careful to match your development engine to make sure it matches what you want to achieve in the outcome. Yeah, basically, once the engineers are on the ground, they know what exact problem statement they are trying to solve. You will see a good implementation come out. And that's what we're trying to do with our fabric services, as well as our SR Linux. You know, mm-hmm. we we understand the value of technology, but we will, you will not find us overdoing it or just doing it for the heck of marketing reasons, you know. Well, thanks very much to Fanny for coming on to today's show to talk about Nokia's fabric services system. I think that the the thing that came out of this was that the whole idea of intent-based configuration is very normal now and that there are ways to do this that can work and that this product has got all the features that I would be looking forward that I could consider at least in the initial phase what we can cover in a 15-minute podcast. And you should find out more about it by reading Nokia's blog, which is Rethinking Data Center Fabric Operations. And there's a link for all of this in the show notes. If you just do a search on your favorite uh, search engine for packet pushes and Nokia fabric services system, it will turn up. There's four links there, particularly to that I used to prepare for today's show. And I thought actually that information was pretty well done. So thanks very much to Nokia for sponsoring today's show. Thanks to Fanny for coming to talk about uh, the product, the fabric services system intent-based uh, data center fabric. And as always, you can find this and many fine free technical podcasts and our website. 
at packetpushes.net. You can follow us on Twitter as at packetpushes. You'll find us on LinkedIn. And if you could rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher, that is a huge help to us. And last but never, ever least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.